message that I was going to teach tonight, and uh, I felt like all day long that the Lord said, I, I just want you to put the sermon away. We're just going to have a time of prayer. And I'm like, but what will the people think? You know, And he just did what he wanted to do anyway. I just love how he works. I promise I won't keep you long. I know that you're probably looking at the clock saying, my goodness, what are we going to do? But um, I have a short message tonight, or I wouldn't have done that to you. But um, I was reading a, a commentary on Ruth that I want to just share with you. It's a bit long. Uh, in in uh, seminary, they taught us to not ever read more than a paragraph out of a book because people you lose people. So I'm just going to pray that there's a, such an anointing on this that I don't lose you because I'm going to read more than a paragraph. She says, so much for your God. Those scornful words were aimed at a friend of mine as she stood with co-workers around the office television watching the tragic events of September 11th unfold. The unexpected barb came out from, the business, uh, from a business colleague next to her, a man with whom she had shared her faith on numerous occasions, all to no effect. His words, uttered as the Second World Trade Center tower collapsed, verbalized what a lot of hor- horrified people, including my friend, were thinking. In our post-9-11 world, we've watched Christian leaders confronted by journalists who want to know, where was God on September 11th? It's a fair question whether we like it or not. Still, I always cringe when I hear it because I'm not sure how to answer the question. It doesn't cause me to doubt God's existence, but it does force me to admit that there's a lot about God I don't understand. To simply say his ways are not our ways doesn't ultimately satisfy or soothe a wounded heart. The consternation we all feel is the price we pay for life in a fallen world. Yes, September 11th troubles me, but there are other troubling days on the calendar, not just the ones that make the evening news, but also the ones that end up in my journal. Thumbing through the pages of my private reflections, I come across entries written in the middle of sleepless nights when anxiety took over and robbed me of rest. When my personal world is falling apart and something or someone precious is at stake, it is frightening when God doesn't show up to hold these things together especially when I'm begging him to come. No voice calls out from heaven to calm the troubled water. There's no miraculous healing or change of heart. No unseen army of angels shields me from a disaster. Instead of getting better, things only get worse. My mother used to tell me things always look worse at night. For the most part, I believe her. But some of the troubles that keep me from sleeping look just as bad in the morning. Christians are great pretenders. We tell ourselves it's not supposed to be this way for Christians, and so we resort to cover up. For the sake of the gospel, we don't want to let on, especially in front of a watching world, that things aren't working out so well. We try to smooth things over for God, send in our best damage control team to to deal with these embarrassing questions, and polish up God's reputation. We feel it's our Christian duty to look our best. We can't afford to show our flaws. Let's give the world and each other the airbrushed version of ourselves as proof that the Christian life really works. God won't and doesn't participate in this kind of masquerade. If the Bible tells us anything, it's that this world is fraught with perils and hardship. Eugene Peterson is candid enough to tell us the truth. No literature is more realistic and honest in facing the harsh facts of life than the Bible. At no time 
Is there the faintest suggestion that the life of faith exempts us from difficulty? On every page of the Bible, there is recognition that faith encounters trouble. We are broken ourselves and can't escape the brokenness and the loss of a fallen world. That's what we're going to see as we continue in the book of Ruth tonight. What really has struck me as I've been studying is how real this book is. Ruth's questioning of God and his goodness and if he's even with her and that his hand has gone forth on, uh, against her. All of those things we want to hush up in the church today. We, we don't want pe- people to have any type of faith failures. We want, us to, we want to wear that mask and look like we have everything together and we are, you know, all that in a bag of potato chips. But that is not the reality of a Christian walk. When I was a little girl growing up, we had this, this saying that was big in church that, 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 uh, you know, that, that God has a good plan for your life and that he wants you happy. Do, do you remember, Leah, you came from those circles. What was that saying? It, do you remember it was a, it, we would always say it at the end of service. Does anybody know what that was? But, but it was that whole idea of God has a good plan for your life. And, and in, in other words, if your life isn't good, God mustn't love you. And we've misled people. Nowhere in the Bible do I see that we're entitled to a peachy keen, honky-dory life. I see that Jesus himself said, in this world, you will have trouble. Not you might. But then he says, but take heart, I've overcome the world. And so we open up the pages of Ruth tonight. You can open to Ruth chapter 1. We're going to begin looking at Ruth's life in a little more detail. And, And I love that the writer of Ruth doesn't gloss over her pain. That it's real, that it's raw. And you know what? As I've been studying, I find myself in these pages. I find myself relating to her life. We'll begin in verse one. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Emelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. Then Emelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left and her two sons. Now they took wives of the, of the women of Moab. The name of one was Orpha, and the name of the other was Ruth, and they dwelt there about ten years. Then both Malon and Chilion also died. So the woman survived her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. Therefore, she went out from the place she was, her and her two daughter-in-laws with her. And they went, on, they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughter-in-laws, go return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. So she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, Surely we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Are there still sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, if I should have a husband tonight and should also bear sons, would you wait for them till they were grown? Would you restrain yourselves from having husbands? No, my daughters, for it grieves me very much for your sakes 
that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpha kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods, little g gods, return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following you for wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. The Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts you and me. When she saw that, this was, that she was determined to go with her, she stopped speaking to her. Now the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. And it happened when they had come to Bethlehem that all the city was excited because of them. And the woman said, and the women said, is this Naomi? But she said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went out full, and the Lord has brought me home again empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. Now they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. We talked last week about how it was really important that we started this chapter with, with that these were the days when the judges ruled. Uh, we, we talked about how the, the author is giving us great insight to what was happening during this time. You need to know that this book of Ruth was written, and in, in our Bible, it follows after the book of Judges, does it not? But really, if you're looking at when that book of Ruth took place, it took place in the book of Judges. And so what the author is doing is he's giving us a snapshot of one individual life that or a family life that takes place while the judges were ruling. Are you following me? So even though this is a separate book, it is really a picture of what is happening in the book of Judges. So we need to know what was happening then. For those of you that were not here last week, we talked about a cycle of sin that dominated the book of Judges. We talked about how the Israel, God's chosen people, began serving him and loving him well. And, and then they got lax and they began to follow into sin and into idolatry. And then all of a sudden, they, they really began became enslaved by those, those idols they were worshiping, by, by the sin that they were bowing down before. They became enslaved. And, and then they got miserable because who knows when you're enslaved, you are miserable. And, and when they got miserable enough, they would cry out to God. And God, who is full of mercy and full of grace, would hear their cries and he would respond to them. He would raise up a deliverer, a judge, and they would be delivered out of their pain. And then they would fall in love with God again and be following him. And then before you know it, they'd grow lax again and they'd start slipping back into sin. Sound familiar? And idolatry. And then they get miserable enough as the, the deeper they got into sin. And the whole cycle would just continue. And that is the, the cycle that they lived in the book of Judges. If you flip back to Judges chapter 2. Judges is just one book behind Ruth. Judges chapter 2. I want you to look at verse 10. It says, and then another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord, nor the work which he had done for Israel. 
who did not know the Lord, nor what he had done for Israel. That generation, see, these were God's chosen people. We, we see in Genesis that, that God delivered his people out of slavery and, and he took them into a promised land. We see that in Joshua. And, and then we go into Judges where God's chosen people now, even though they were living in the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, a land of abundance, they grew slack. And they began to, to walk away from God and begin to sin and bow down to idols. And, and, and that's where we're living in that book. And it says it's because there was a generation who came up who did not know about God. Church, I'm just going to tell you, we have a responsibility to raise our children to know the things of God. And not apologize for it. Because here was a generation who, had, who, who was rising up who did not know about God or the deeds that he had done for Israel. Judges tells us that these people were doing what was right in their own eyes. That's a word that we use today uh, to describe backsliders. Backslid, people who are backslidden from Christianity were once following God, but they slid into sin and they began to grow stagnant and they were, they, they were doing what was right in their own eyes. How easy is it for us to begin doing what is right in our own eyes instead of what God's word says? We talked last week about my, one of my favorite verses is that his pleasant path always leads to pleasant places. I wish I would have known that when I was 18 years old. I wish that scripture would have been pasted on my mind when I was 18 years old, doing what I thought was right in my own eyes, living however I wanted to live, like there wasn't a king of kings and lord of lords. Could have saved me a whole lot of pain if I had just realized that his pleasant path really does lead to pleasant places. The next part of the scripture we talked about last week says that there was a famine in the land. And, and so many of us are familiar with the book of Ruth. And we know how this story ends, but I want you to just pretend that you don't know what chapter four holds. I want you to feel the tension of what's really happening here. There was a famine in the land. It wasn't, I said last week, it wasn't like, like we could just run to pick and save and pick up some groceries. They didn't have Costco where you could get things in abundance. They, 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 they didn't have Twinkies that lasted forever on the shelf. When there was a famine in the land, it affected them deeply. And scripture tells us that a famine always came as a result of God's judgment. And so I so want them to, in this famine, realize that it was a judgment of God. And I want them to turn and say, God, what we, we, we've been doing what is right in our own eyes. And we just repent of that. And we ask you to just bless this land again. I want to see that happen. But it didn't. And we see what happens is this man, who, by the way, his name means my God is king takes his wife, whose name means pleasant, and they leave the place of God's abundance, the place of God's provision, and they head to Moab, a place uh, where it is the territory of Israel's enemies. He heads right into enemy territory. Can I tell you that anytime we choose to sin, anytime we choose to walk away from God's goodness, of God's best for our life, and we head to do whatever we think is right in our own eyes, I promise you it's enemy territory. I promise you. These people were, were enemies of Israel. They, they were people who lived an immoral life. People who were, were, were the God uh, cursed these people. And they headed right into that area, right into enemies' territory. 
And it was because of that famine. I, I really have a little compassion for, for Amalek, even though his name meant God is king, my God is king. And, and they, he was leaving what God had said is blessed and he was going to enemy territory. I don't think God really was his king. And I realized how many times we verbalize that, that my God is king and then we go do whatever we want anyway. But I have a little sympathy for him because his two children, Malon and Chilean, their names mean uh, wasting away and, and sickly. <laughs> That's what their names mean. And so that tells me that even as little children, they were sickly and wasting away. And now they're in the middle of a famine. And I'm telling you as a parent, how do you deal with that? I have sickly and wasting away and I need to get them some food. I think he was desperate. I was with my grandson this weekend, my grandson Alton, and, and he is, he's a little chunker. He is so stinking cute. You just can't even imagine how sweet he is. And, and he was eating and he was sitting on my lap and he was just grabbing food and he was just, you know, just fistful in his mouth. And he's a good little eater, isn't he, Dave? He's just precious. And Mm, he's precious. And, and, and I was watching him eat and I had been studying the, the scripture and talking about famine and how Amalek and Naomi had these two children that were sickly and wasting away. And I thought to myself, what would I do if this was Alton? What would I do if that little boy who loves to eat so much had nothing to eat? And so we're hard on Amalek, but I, I, I think he was desperate. And can you imagine what they must have been thinking? If we're God's chosen people and he loves us so much, why is he allowing this to happen? So they take off from Moab. And I told you, Moab is a people known for lawlessness, immorality, a people who opposed and oppressed Israel. They were a people opposed to God and his ways. They worshiped the God of Chemish. Chemish was the, the god of human sacrifice. And we talked about that last week, how Emelech and Naomi, by going to that town, re really ended up seeing human sacrifice. Emelech lost his own life. Uh, the two boys lost their life. That is what happens when we do as we see fit. And the answer to doing as we see fit is repentance. It's not running from God. They took matters into their own hands and they paid a dear price for it. In verse three, we see that Emelek dies. Her husband dies. And that's what happens when my God is king and pleasant do as they see what is right in their own eyes. You see, my God is king ends up dying and pleasant turns bitter. Do you see that? And that's the result of doing what is right in your own eyes. Her husband died. That's tragic. You need to know that in Bible times for a woman to become a widow, for her to lose her husband, a, a woman didn't, it, she, she couldn't support herself. She needed a husband to take care of her, to protect her. And, and when she lost a husband, she lost everything. The word widow comes from a word in Hebrew meaning silent one. And it's because a woman in Bible times would not have a voice in society. A widow in Bible times would not have a voice in society. A woman without a husband would have no way of providing for herself or protecting her. But the good thing for Naomi is she had two sons, Melon and Chilean. And I'm sure even when her husband died, she thought, oh, not as, it's not all lost. I have these two sons and they will, they will grow up and take care of me and, and God is still good. 
And so when that happens, when, when Amalek dies, I really want Ruth to say, we're going back home. We're going back to Bethlehem where we've run from God enough. We're going to go back to his place of provision. I really want to see that. But do you know what happens? The Bible says that they went from going there to visit, to, to, to staying there, to dwelling there. Now we see that she's going to spend 10 more years after her husband dies in that land where she knows she should not be. Oh, I, I just want to say this is unfamiliar to me, but someone who's lived a life of sin, someone who, who's done everything wrong she could possibly have done and more. Someone who, who agrees with Paul who, when he says, I am the chief among sinners. I get that. I understand that. And you see, I understand why she stayed there 10 more years. Because it's a slippery slope. You get comfortable in sin. You stop calling sin what God calls it. And you begin to dwell in that place and call it acceptable instead of going back to the place of God's provision. And so it gets worse. You think it can't, but it gets worse. Her two sons, even though God has said over and over in scripture and to his people, do not marry foreign wives. Don't intermingle with the enemies in this territory. What do they do? They marry Moabite women. Now, I just want you to stop and think about this. In Bible times, marriages were often arranged. <laughs> and it was, it was arranged on how it could benefit the bride's parents, what they had to benefit from that exchange. So they negotiated a bridal price. Now, I want you to think, Malon and Chilean, they're in a foreign land. They don't own any land. Their, their father has died, and they don't have an inheritance. What exactly could there be to negotiate? You know what that tells me? You see, in another place, we, we know that the Moabite women were women who enticed Israelite men into sin. They seduced Israelite men. We know that because in Numbers, I think, 25, it says that something like 24,000 people died in a day because of interacting with these immoral Moabite women. So Moabite women were known for seducing Israelite men. That's a big no-no. God says, don't intermingle with them. Don't marry them. And what do they do? They did what was right in their own eyes. I'm sure these women were lookers. <laughs> if they could seduce Israelite men and had, a, had, a, had a, a reputation for that, can you imagine what they must have looked like? And so sickly and wasting away, marries two Moabite women and doing what is right in their own eyes. So are we surprised that 10 years later, <laughs> we find out that they die and that Naomi is now left with two Moabite daughter-in-laws? And did you catch one other thing in that scripture? What else is missing from that scripture after 10 years of marriage? Anybody? Children. So now we find out that there's yet another uh, curse, another uh, issue, another pain in Naomi's life. What is it? No grandchildren, no heir to continue that family name. Remember, Emelech has died. Now her two sons are died. Now that name cannot continue because there's no grandchildren. Can you imagine? See, I can imagine this because I have seven children, for those of you that don't know me, and I have two beautiful grandchildren who are just the pride and joy of my life. But, but I just need to tell you that we have another child in our family who desperately wants a child, wants a baby. And she's been trying for, for some time to have one and can't. 
And this mama right here, can I tell you how much time I spend praying for her? Praying that womb is opened in Jesus' name. Praying and saying, is it this month, Lord? No, it's not this month. Is it this month? Did anything happen? No. And one disappointment after another, after another, after another, after another. Every month a disappointment. Can you imagine Naomi? Every month while her sons are still alive, thinking, see, in Bible times especially, a woman's whole identity was in the the fact that she could bear a son. Produce children was her identity. So now these Moabite women uh, for 10 years were not able to have a child. And then at the end of those 10 years, both of their husbands die. Can you imagine what that must have been like? Can you imagine more pain, pain upon pain upon pain? She lost her, she had to move from her friends in Bethlehem. She, I don't believe she was all for this. I really don't. As I read this story, I'm just wondering if Emelech, the head of that home, said, we're going to Moab. And she didn't have a choice. And then she's left to clean up a mess that she didn't even make. And then her husband dies and she's stuck in a foreign area with nothing to call her own. And then her her sons marry Moabite women and they know they shouldn't. And then they don't have children. And then they die. Can you imagine? See, we're so familiar with this story. I want you to feel the tension. Can you imagine her pain? Can you imagine her disappointment? Can you imagine her why God wise? Can you imagine eventually when she says, the hand of God is going out against me? Can you imagine her feeling like, God, do you even love me? Do I even matter to you? Her life was in ruins. She lost everything. Some people, some commentators call her the female Job. I I really like that because I look at her life and I actually think uh, that, that she's even worse off than Job. You say, well, how was that, Rhea? Because at least he still had his wife and at least he was a male and he could go work and support himself. She didn't have any of that. Why, God, why? Have you ever been in that place where you said, why, God, why? How much more do you want me to take? What else can happen? Do you think that Naomi looked back at her life and and all the destruction on her life and questioned God's goodness? I believe she stopped believing that he would even bless her. In fact, we see that she blames him for her pain. The Almighty has done this to me. As I read this story this week, I realized that her Her trauma and her pain had bruised her faith. And I wrote in my notes, I wonder if anybody's sitting here tonight with bruised faith. Faith that's endured pain and heartache and trauma and disappointment, and it got bruised in the process. It's a sad day when we feel like the hand of God is going out against us. And I think that's where Naomi was. Today, I got on my elliptical and, and I was just poor. I turned out the lights and I, I was just on the elliptical talking to God and I was pouring out my heart. And, and it was this kind of thing where there are times in my life I feel like God's hand has gone out against me. And, and I was identifying with Naomi and I was saying, why God, why? And do you even see me? And, 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 and Lord, where is it? Where, where are you in this? The woman that stopped from Indiana that turned her car around and had to come back. She said, the the Lord said to tell the person who was here tonight that he sees their faithfulness, that he sees their faithfulness. I burst into tears because today on that elliptical, I said to the Lord, do you even see me? 
Do you see that I would do anything for you? Do you see that I spend time studying your word? Do you see that I'm trying to be faithful, Lord? And tonight, he sends a woman from Indiana driving through, happens to see a church, feels the word of the Lord rise up within her. She continues to go and says, Lord, I'll just pray for them. And he says, turn your car around and go back. That's my God. But have you ever been where Naomi is at? Where you think, God, is there anything else you'd like to do? Can, can there be any more pain? Your hand has gone out against me. Where are you, God? And why aren't you working in my life? Notice verse 6. We see a glimmer of hope. And, and I love that. And I want you to notice something that I just saw today. I loved it. Her glimmer of hope began to arise the first time we see God's word, God's name mentioned. In verse 6, she had heard that God had visited his people. Isn't it interesting that hope begins to arise where God gets brought into this situation? I love it. That she had heard that God had visited his people. I've been telling you on Monday night, I really feel this in my spirit. I can't even tell you how, how, how heavy this is in my spirit, that we need to begin to testify more everywhere we go about what God is doing in our life, about God's faithfulness. Every opportunity we have, every person that God puts in front of us, we need to find an opportunity to testify about God because she heard that God was visiting his people in, in Bethlehem and she made a decision in that moment, I'm going to go where he's working. I'm going to go where he's working, where he's visiting his people. I will chase that anywhere. I'm just going to tell you. Won't I, Leslie? I will chase it anywhere. You tell me where there's a preacher that has an anointing, I will be there in the front row because I will chase after God visiting his people. Naomi heard that God had visited his people and, and look, what it, look at what the word says. Then she arose. Oh, that means to come out of a place of death into a place of life. She arose with her daughter-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab for she had heard in, that, in the country of Moab that God had visited his people by giving them bread. Then she went out from the place she was. So many good things there. But I want you to just, if you highlight or, or write in your Bible, I want you to just in this chapter when you go home tonight, highlight the number of the words return there. It's, it's used something like eight times in this whole chapter. I don't want you to miss that because that word return is important. It's a picture of repentance. It's a picture of, of turning and drawing closer to God rather than going away from him. Ray Pritchard, one of my favorite preachers, says, when this word is used, it could mean to literally turn as if, as if I'm driving west, but I have turned around, so now I'm driving east. But it can also mean to turn spiritually, as in I'm turning back to the Lord. That word has both meanings in this passage. When Naomi starts her journey back to Bethlehem, she's traveling from east to west, so she's reversing the journey that she took with Emlech. But she's also turning her life around in a spiritual sense. After li living in, in a pagan land for a decade, she now returns to her own people and to the God of the Bible. She returned. She turned around and went a different direction. That's what repentance is. Church, I think we've lost the, the beauty of repentance today. Repentance is saying, I've been doing it my way. I'm doing what's right in my eyes. And I'm turning and going back to do what's right in God's eyes. That's repentance. Look at verse 7. It says, she went out from the place she was. Oh, that's an important part of repentance. 
You see, some people sit in the garbage, they sit in the lifestyle of sin, and they just wish things would get better. I wish God would bless me. I wish God would just move in my life the way he moves in her life. I wish that God would just give me, you know, whatever it is I want. I, I just wish, I wish my circumstances would change. And we stay in Moab wishing it would change. And he says, here's what you need to do. You need to return. You need to go back the other direction. You need to leave the place. Look at verse 7. You need to leave the place that you're in. Go out from the place that you're in. Naomi had to make the decision to leave the place of sin she had fallen into. She had drifted far from God. And she made the decision to go towards him again. It's like the prodigal son. One of my favorite stories in the Bible. He's in a pig pen. He's, he's squandered his inheritance. He's pretty much spit in the face of his father. And he, he's in the pig pen, smelling like pig poop up to, up to his neck in pig slop. And the Bible says that he came to his senses. <laughs> and he turned to return home to the father. But here's my favorite part. It says that while he was still a long way off, the father saw him. It's the only time in the whole Bible that we see God in a hurry. The Bible says he ran to that son. You see, all he waits for is the turn. And he runs our direction with blessing, with goodness and mercy and grace. There is no sin too deep, I promise you. Uh, coming from a woman who's committed them all, there's very little you could say to me that I couldn't say, been there, done that, got the t-shirt. Let me testify to you about God. He is rich in mercy and grace. And that he waits for you to turn. And in that moment, he will lavish you with grace and forgiveness and mercy. So look at verse 8, that Naomi said, oh, eight verses. Nobody speaks. All we have are pain, heartache, tragedy, death. Eight verses. And then suddenly somebody speaks. I love it. And she says, go and return, there's that word again, to your mother's house. I can't do anything for you. I don't have any sons for you to marry. You're going to be widows too. And here's what's worse, you're childless widows. <laughs> I, I, even if I had a baby today, he couldn't grow up and you couldn't marry him. See, in, in Bible times, and that's what you're going to find in the next couple weeks, that if there's any, uh, any relative of the person who's died, there, there was this unwritten rule that they had to uh, marry the widow and provide for her. And so Naomi's saying, I don't even have anybody else you can marry. I don't have another son. <laughs> and trust me, the Lord's hand has gone out against me. You do not want to be around me because he's against me. And if you are with me, he's going to be against you too. Look at all the death around me. You do not want to be with me. Go home. It was logical, wasn't it? Ruth says, I'm not going anywhere. Orpha left. But I want you to look at verse 13, and it says, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. <laughs> Isn't that what happens in the midst of suffering? We begin to question God's goodness. See, Naomi knew God. She had walked with him all her life, and now in this time of heartache and pain, she begins to question his goodness, to question whether he's even working in her life. That's what happens to us when hard times come. I want to ask you if you have room for that in your faith. Can you be free enough to admit to ourselves and to those around us that sometimes when things get hard, we question God's goodness? 
rather than make somebody put a mask on and pretend like it's not a problem. Look at verses 16 and 17. Ruth says, and I love this. I think it's in one of the translations. It says, don't pressure me to desert you or to give up following you. I love that. That's what Ruth was, what Naomi was doing. She was trying to push Ruth away, push anything good away from her. You see, that's what happens when we're so traumatized, when we're so hurt, when we have so much loss in our life, when we feel so abandoned. Anybody that comes close to us, we try to push away. Because you see, pushing you away doesn't hurt nearly as, as much as you leaving or deserting me or abandoning me. And that's what, that's what Naomi is doing there. She's pushing Ruth away. And Ruth says, no, no, no. Entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following you. For wherever I go, you will go wherever I lodge. You, you lodge, I will lodge. And your people shall be my people. And here's what I love. And your God shall be my God. You mean the God who Ruth just, or Naomi just told you his hand had gone out against her? You mean the same God who allowed your sons to die, your husband to die? <laughs> That God is going to be my God. Man, I just want, I give her so many kudos. Because she watched Naomi go through this. She watched Naomi in that kind of pain. What Ruth is saying is, I want you to realize that she's left her family behind. If she leaves Moab, she's left her family. She's left her culture. She's left her religion, her gods. She's left her friends. She has a lot of loss too. She left her dead husband behind. And she's pretty much losing any chance she has of ever marrying again because Naomi doesn't have another son. But Ruth says, I need to show you hesed. I love that word, hesed. It means loving kindness. It, 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 I love Paul Miller's definition of hesed. He said, it's love without an exit strategy. That to me is a headbanger. What if we lived our marriages with hesed, love without an exit strategy? Hesed is a stubborn love. She says, my God is going to be, your God is going to be my God. And let the Lord do so to me and more so. If anything but death parts me, parts you and me. I love it. One of the commentators I read said, it, the King James says, let it be thus, the Lord do thus to me. If anything but death separates us. They, they said that it would be like Ruth saying she was doing one of these things. Like as she's slashing her neck. Let the Lord do this to me if anything but death separates us. Let him take my life if anything but death separates us. That's chesed. Verse 18, when she saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped speaking to her. That makes me laugh every time I get to that. See, that's what bitter women do best. They give you the cold shoulder or the silent treatment. They punish you for loving them well. <laughs> Can you imagine what that trip was like? She just stopped speaking to her the whole way back to Bethlehem. That would be a long trip. Look at verse 19. Now the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem, and it happened when they came to Bethlehem that all the city was excited because of them. And the woman said, the women said, is this Naomi? Look at that. They barely recognized her. Over a decade of constant pain and heartache had changed her appearance. It'll do that to us. I always tease and say, when I go into a conference on the weekend, I stand in the back and I'll scan the crowd because you know what I'm looking for? Bitter women. I am so good at this. Ask Leslie. I can go through a crowd and I can pick out bitter women in the crowd. And it's not because I had the super spiritual gift or anything to pick bitter women out. It's because it shows right here on their face. And a bitter woman can be putting a smile on her face and you still know she's bitter. 
because it shows on your countenance. And I always say to women, you know, we spend so much money on cosmetics and clothing and getting our hair just right. And in his presence, if we just spend some time in his presence getting rid of that bitterness, if I can pick you out of a crowd, what that person did to you 10 years ago is still hurting you. My mom used to say to me, get him back by living well. The best revenge is a life lived well. But bitterness will change your appearance. And, and it did even recognize her as Naomi. And uh, that's the kind of bitterness that no makeup can hide. Verse 20, she said, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Names were important in Bible times. You've heard me say that a million times. Whenever you're studying, always look up the names because that's why the names of, of God are so important. They, they talk about his character. They give us insight to who he really is. And, and so names were important. They didn't just randomly give people names like Rhea, you know, so I could be called diarrhea, gonorrhea all my life. Mom, what were you thinking? <laughs> we didn't get random names. Names were important, and so Naomi meant pleasant. That tells me that, that people looked at her and just saw how pleasant she was. She was a pleasant woman until she decided, I don't want to be called pleasant anymore. Call me Mara. Call me bitter. <laughs> Here's a woman who's had so much loss, so much pain, and suddenly her world turns bitter. Can I ask you a question? Has something made your life bitter tonight? Look at what Naomi says. She says, the, the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, and the Lord has brought me back again empty. The Almighty did this to me. I want you to not miss that. That word Almighty is El Shaddai. Anybody know what El Shaddai is? It's the double-breasted one. It's the, the one who, who is all-sufficient, the all-sufficient one, the Almighty. <laughs> it just makes me chuckle. The Almighty sent me back full and brought me back empty. He did this to me. The also one who, who I'm giving lip service to saying he is all sufficient, but I'm empty. If he was all sufficient, why are you empty, Ruth? Or Naomi. And then she said, the Lord, that word Lord is Jehovah. It's I am, the great I am. Everything you have need of, he answers, I am. So, so Naomi's saying, the Almighty did this to me. The Lord did this to me. The great I am, everything I have need of, he is, but he did this to me. He brought me back empty. Have you ever been in that place? Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Her whole identity was tied to her suffering and her heartache. There's some of you sitting here tonight and your whole identity is tied to your suffering. You could say with her, don't call me Naomi. I'm not pleasant. I'm bitter. Just call me bitter because I've had so much heartache, so much pain, so much wrong done to me in my life. Just it's my identity. I know some people like that who have known them for 20 years and it's the same story over and over again. What happened back here is still their identity. It's still, it's still all that they know in their life. It's where they're stuck. I want to just say, Naomi, I read the end of the story. Can I just tell you, God is working in ways you can't even see. He didn't do this to you. He is working good in your life. Can you just trust him? I want to say that to her. But you see, she couldn't see that. All she could see is her loss. All she could see is the emptiness. All she could see is what she thought God had done to her. She did what bitter people do best. She looked for somebody to blame. It's God's fault. He made me bitter. So she said, look at this. I went out full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Who's standing beside her? 
Ruth, who's left her people, who's left her friends, who's left her homeland, who's left her culture to come and stay by Naomi's side, but you're empty. He brought you back empty. Hello, what about me? Can you imagine? I was struck by this. I wish I'd had more time to study it. She said, why do you call me Naomi? Since the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has afflicted me. Look at that. The Lord has testified against me. It means that he, as the judge, delivered a verdict about her life. I, I don't know if any of you have ever read Robert Henderson's book, The Courts of Heaven. Have you ever read it? Anybody read it? If you haven't, you want to read it. It's a powerful book. And uh, we just saw him in, in person a couple of weeks ago, didn't we, Leslie? He's, he's just an incredible teacher. And, 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 and it's the idea of that God is the judge, <laughs> And, and, and that he delivers verdicts about it. Remember the scripture that says Satan appeared to, to, to God and God says, have you considered my servant Job? He says, where have you been, Satan? Satan says, I've been roaming the world looking for vulnerabilities and weaknesses, looking for something that I can get an end into somebody's life and bring destruction. That's where I've been. I've been looking for that. And he's appearing before God, the judge. Do you know that he is, uh, he is the adversary He's the prosecuting attorney. Do you understand that? Satan is. And that he stands accusing the brethren 24-7 before God. Do you know Rhea did this? Do you know Rhea said this? Do you know? He's accusing constantly before God. Powerful book. But Naomi says, God has delivered a verdict about me. And he's afflicted me. He's found me guilty. And he afflicted me. Oh, I just want to say, Naomi, I've read the rest of this book. Can I tell you it's going to get good? But she couldn't see that because, you see, when we're stuck in pain, all we can see is pain. Look at verse 22. So Naomi returned, and Ruth Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, in case you forgot, she's a Moabitess. She's a foreigner, and she is in Bethlehem, the place where God's promised land, his people, his chosen people are there. And Naomi, you brought Ruth, a Moabitess, to Bethlehem? The author adds that just in case... We've forgotten it. But notice the last part of that verse. Now they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Oh, that's so important. See, you're going to find out next week that God is working redemption in Naomi's life even when she can't see it. Oh, thank you, Lord, that you work even when I can't see it. Kierkegaard said, life can be only understood backwards, but it must be lived forwards. I like that. You're going to find out next week that although sometimes it looks like God is against us and that his hand has gone out against us, when, why, when all the while he's working in ways we cannot see, in bigger ways than we can imagine. Such a bummer that life can only be understood backwards, but it has to be lived forwards. Where are you at in this story? I told you that if I preach to you and we never flesh it out, I've wasted your time. For me, I'm an Emelech. Sometimes I can say, my God is king, and I can give that lip service, and then I can go do and live whatever way I think is right in my own eyes. We're all Ruths. We're all born into a sinful culture, a pagan culture, and a moral culture. I can be a Naomi. I can blame God for all my problems and become very bitter. Where are you at in this story? There are people here tonight who have made some choices to go to Moab, and maybe you can't even see it. I'm praying that God speaks to your heart tonight. In your stubbornness, you might have decided that God's way is not the best way, and you ceased allowing him to be king, and you're doing what's right in your own eyes. 
Maybe you're full of hatred and unforgiveness. Maybe you refuse to let go of an offense. You think no matter what God says, I'm going to do whatever I think is right. Maybe for whatever reason, you find yourself far from him this evening. Maybe you're living in famine and things have dried up in your life. You're in a barren place. Can I tell you, he's calling you back home. Maybe you've walked away from God's promised land of blessing and you've set off for a land of living life on your own terms, doing things your way. It's a great opportunity to come home tonight. Maybe you're living in Moab in the world and you're doing the exact opposite of everything God wants. I'm going to ask you to consider turning tonight. I'm going to ask Megan to come and just play that song again, just the In Your Presence song. And, and I know it's 8 o'clock and, oh, it's 8.22. I really need to let you go. Wow, I'm sorry I really kept you and I didn't want to do that. But I just ask you to stand to your feet and I really want you to take this word to heart tonight and ask yourself where you are in the story. Where are you in this story? Have you wandered far from God's best? Are you insistent on doing things your way and still calling him my God is king? Are you here and maybe full of bitterness and blaming God for everything wrong in your life? Has your pain and heartache distorted who you really are and blurred you from seeing God clearly? Where are you? As we sing the song in closing, I just want to give you an opportunity. The words of this, this chorus is, you know, all that matters is you, Lord. Is that how we're really living? Let's just really search our heart and ask ourselves those hard questions. Because I feel like barley harvest is beginning. The time of new beginnings, I really believe that. Let's just sing this song one more time.